from Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. A new Army Digital Oversight Council will streamline IT decision-making inside the service. Army Chief Information Officer Raj Iyer says the council will function like a board of directors. FCW reports budgets, cloud migration, and other functions will be part of the board's jurisdiction. A battery problems causing a new delay in the Bradley Infantry Fighting Vehicle. Army Test and Evaluation Command at Fort Hood, Texas suspended part of the test when the battery overheated. Defense News reports the Bradley A4 design has a new charger but not a new battery, and the new charger overheated the battery in the test. The acting chair of the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Board is now the permanent chair. FedScoop reports the board formally announced Carlton Johnson won a vote to lead the board Tuesday night. Johnson's been the acting chair of the board since it got rid of former chair Ty Scheiber in September. Work is already underway on the Biden administration's new national defense strategy. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin says the new strategy will be out sometime in 2022. Becca Wasser is a fellow in the defense program at the Center for a New American Security. Becca, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on. The sense that I take so far from the national security priorities that Secretary Austin and President Biden have laid out so far is that the priorities are not going to be much different than they have been for the past four years. What's your sense of how executing a strategy might be different in the new administration than we've seen for the past four years? Sure. So the Biden administration has inherited a number of challenges, and we have some really pressing ones. And the one that is most pressing is COVID-19. So you're going to see that taking up a lot of bandwidth at the U.S. Department of Defense, as well as across government. Um, but if you're looking at the national defense strategy more specifically, you are entirely right. It is probably going to follow a lot of the same contours as the last national defense strategy that was published in 2018. You know, the hallmark of that strategy is strategic competition with Russia and China. The slight difference that we're going to see in probably the next national defense strategy is going to be ensuring that China is elevated as the number one challenge um, and ensuring that, you know, the U.S. is competing and competing to a very specific end goal and a very specific objective. So we can expect that the next national defense strategy is going to clarify what those end goals and objectives might be, as well as setting a very clear role for the U.S. military, because ultimately competition is a whole of government approach. But the U.S. military has a very special and unique element to add to that. And you can expect the next national defense strategy to clarify exactly what that might be. The most common theme I think I took away from the 2018 NDS, Becca, was that folks, experts both on the program and off the air, consistently said, wow, we've never seen anybody explicitly name China as the high level threat that that NDS did. A lot of folks have made uh, a comparison to what, how the Obama administration talked about China and tried to work with China, comparing that to the Trump administration's approach, and now are trying to maybe 
imply that the Biden administration will kind of go back to the way it was before. Is that realistic given what we've learned about China and given some of the actions that China's taken over the past four to six years? I think we're going to see a mix of both approaches. I think we're going to see a bit of a hard stance towards China when it comes down to some of the activities that have, frankly, uh, you know, been intended to erode some of the U United States' technological and uh, military edge. So, you know, we'll see some of those harder stances to ensure that China isn't taking steps that will ultimately erode some of the U.S. advantages. Uh, that would enable it to, um, you know, be successful in strategic competition and in case of a potential conflict in the future. But you are also going to see engagement with China on some key issues, mainly in the diplomatic sphere, to just ensure that China doesn't become, you know, a global pariah or in that the United States and China are set on some type of, you know, collision course that would unnecessarily lead us to conflict. So I think that's what we should expect to see. I also think that, you know, if we're looking for what's going to be really different in the next national defense strategy and what's going to change, the same way that the last uh, strategy elevated China, I think we're going to see an elevation of transnational threats. And traditionally, when we think of transnational threats, we think of terrorism. Instead, in this case, we're going to see an elevation of transnational threats like global pandemics, as well as climate change, issues that span across the globe and are long-term challenges that we need to start shaping uh, potential strategies to mitigate some of the damage that those might cause. In that theme, would something like a, a non-state actor in the cyber realm be a transnational threat that maybe not necessarily addressed, in, addressed directly in an NDS, but that sounds like the kind of thing that you're alluding to there, Becca? Absolutely. I think we've already seen, you know, noise from the Biden administration that cybersecurity is going to be elevated. It's incredibly timely after the solar winds attack. Um, but what I think we really need to note here is that usually cyber attacks can are coming from nation states. And here I think is the biggest concern. So you can have non-state actors using cyber attacks against the United States, but more often than not, they are tied in some way to adversary nations that once again are trying to erode some of the U.S. advantages, steal pertinent information, um, and use that in that way. So ultimately, I think we do need to be concerned about cyber security and cyber attacks, but it's going to be trying to enhance things like attribution. So we can identify where those seemingly non-state actors may or may not actually be tied to nation states that are trying to cause some grievous harm to our national security. We have about a minute left, Becca. One of the critiques of just about every strategy of every sort that is produced in Washington is the alignment of the execution of that strategy to the budget realities, which comes first, the money or the strategy. How do you expect that to play out in the Biden administration? Any, any sense of whether things will happen in one direction or the other? Well, right now, the budget is the priority at the Department of Defense. There was a really contentious transition uh, that took place uh, with the Biden-Harris transition team and, uh, you know, then uh, folks at the Department of Defense. And so right now, the folks at DOD are starting from scratch at the budget. And so their priority is trying to rebuild this and trying to think about ways in which it will happen. 
you know, if we're reading the tea leaves, it definitely looks as though the defense budget is going to remain as is, if not drop significantly. So that's going to really uh, enable DOD to have to prioritize, you know, what are the top line items? What are the priority challenges that they need to address? And how is it that they could do it if the resources remain the same or diminish slightly? Becca Wasser, thanks very much for joining me. It's great to have you here. Thanks for having me. Up next, speeding up the vaccine supply chain. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how the Defense Production Act can make a life-saving difference. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Welcome back. The Biden administration is aiming for 100 million coronavirus vaccines in the president's first 100 days in office. Agencies can use the Defense Production Act to speed things up. Jeff Bialos is partner at Evershed Sutherland. He's former deputy undersecretary of defense for industrial affairs. Jeff, welcome. Thanks very much. You're writing about this issue in uh, defense news, and I appreciate you discussing this today. You write the executive order about the uh, Defense Production Act is a good first step. What comes next is even more important. What is so important about what comes next, Jeff? Well, you have to put this in context. Uh, this, there's no modern-day precedent for what we've done and what we need to do here to mobilize our industrial resources for PPE, for testing, and for vaccine on really a society or global basis, and to use the DPA in that context. We've done one-offs and two-offs with respect to using the defense production off, but nothing like this. The administration did a good start, as you said, with a plan, an executive order, and by the way, a supply coordinator named to identify shortages. But I think they ought to build on that, not just leave this to the agencies. I think the Trump administration tried that, and what we found is it didn't work well. I think we need a holistic approach, and by that I mean, uh, the president said this is war. We need to create effectively a unified command center, if you will, under that supply coordinator to bring together in one place the people with the skill sets in health industries and in defense production act and budget and rapid equipping from the defense department and fema who could do rapid contracting and once they do that they need to get under the hood of the vaccine production supplier base which we don't know and i don't believe each vaccine producer knows the whole picture to make sure we have enough to uh, supply the needs in the first 100 days and beyond. And, and so the, the it's an information gap. We, we, we need to, that's the first thing to do, is to survey these companies and do an information, and to get the information. Once armed with that information, we need to figure out the best way to expand the overall supply in the short term, to add capacity in the medium term, and to add to the, uh, you know, the base of, um, uh, of things we could draw on uh, in, in, the, in the long term. Um, I think in the short term, the realities of making vaccines and ingredients a, a regulated products, it makes it challenging to really increase things. Uh, yes, uh, and I also assume that a lot of these companies are operating at full capacity today to do this. So if you issue them, for example, a rated order, which is the tool of choice under the Defense Production Act, you might put us first in the queue, but you're not going to expand the supply. Um, I think what you have to do is by getting this information, you look at these suppliers and look, maybe some are doing other things in their facilities, 
And in that case, we can issue an allocation order rarely used to essentially require the whole facility to be used for national security. Why would they be doing this? Well, who knows? Maybe some products in their product mix are more profitable than others. I don't know, but that's the first order of business. The second is uh, to facilitate, to use the incentives and the financial incentives under the Defense Production Act to um, you know, essentially provide loans and other mechanisms to add supply lines, add capacity, uh, in any which way that can be done in the short and medium term. It's not an easy thing to do, and it's not a three-month fix. Um, but we need to do this to make sure that the president's goals here uh, can be met. And I'm, I'm concerned, for one, if it's left to individual agencies, we're going to have uh, a challenge in doing this. I want to go back to the, the kind of the framework that you laid out at the beginning of your comments there, Jeff. What was what's different about the vision that you laid out there than what the Trump administration uh, put together with Operation Warp Speed? We have General Perna at the head of that and, and medical professionals at the head of that. What was underneath that was is was different or or didn't work as well as the the structure that you envisioned? Well, you're talking about Warp Speed. I was talking overall about PPE and testing. We did virtually none of that, by the way. Um, I think at warp speed, what's hard to see, it looks to me like they didn't issue rated orders to Pfizer or the other companies. They didn't use the DPA. And I don't think they have, to what I can see, at least from the outside, much of any direct visibility into that supplier base. So it's nice and great to have contracts at the top level, but we don't know if we have the supplier capacity to, to meet all these contractual obligations of all these companies, not just to the United States, to many other countries around the world. So that's why I think this is a challenge where government has to step in and say, look, this is a war. We need to, you know, companies are reluctant to give you information about their supplier base. We need to get down into those weeds to figure it out. I think that's one of the big differences I can see. We have a little bit more than a minute left, and you write at the beginning of this piece about something that I have not seen as much discussion about in other places, and that is uh, the, the, something you alluded to a moment ago. Uh, uh, thinking about the entire supply chain, you write it this way, from specialized ingredients in the vaccines to critical auxiliary items such as glass vials. I, I remember one discussion I heard, I think on Bloomberg Radio, months ago talking about the availability of vials and just about no other conversation about the supply of syringes, the supply of all of the other materials that go along with administering a vaccine to someone. What's lacking there and how can the DPA help address that problem too? Same issue. It's the same issue I just articulated. We need to get the information and, and move on from there. With my less than a minute left, let me make one other point, which is Look, there may be some hard choices ahead here. We have several vaccines that are authorized, but one other one, which is a single shot vaccine, which may be authorized in the next month or two. You know, it could be the administration may face a challenge of, let's assume that vaccine is authorized and we look at the supplier base, maybe to move things along and get that one shot vaccine out to more people quickly, we have to redirect some of the supplier base to Johnson & Johnson. It's not an optimal choice. It's not a first choice. But, you know, it's it's the kind of triage in the battlefield, so to speak, they're going to have to think about in terms of how do you do this quickly and efficiently. Jeff, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you here. Pleasure. Nice to be there here today. Thank you. Up next, the, the Space Force under a new commander in chief straight ahead on Government Matters, the future of space policy in the Biden administration. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. The vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General John Hyten, says the Space Force is on solid ground in the Biden administration. He said last week, though, he doesn't know exactly what will happen to the newest branch of the military, and he hasn't spoken about the force with President Biden or the new Defense Secretary, uh, Austin. McKenna Young is a research assistant at the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. McKenna, thanks very much for coming on the program. You point me to some notes uh, where you say General Raymond has said the Space Force plans to triple its size in 2021. That sounds to me like a force that's operating under the assumption that they're moving full speed ahead, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Space Force isn't going anywhere, although it does have its critics. You know, it was mandated by Congress that it stood up. It would take an act of Congress to take it away. Um, so the Space Force really is moving full force ahead. And you know, right now, the Space Force has a lot of people who have come over from the Air Force. And so that tripling in size will include more people from the Air Force and will include people from the Army and the Navy and other branches of the military. That struck me when this process first began as maybe the most important marker that the Space Force wouldn't go away at some point because the Army and the Navy were resistant that their people would leave and move to the Space Force. Is that really kind of what hardens or matures the Space Force in the minds of the other organizations inside the department? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. And, you know, the Space Force kind of gets a bad rap. It's kind of a, a shiny new object with a fun name, but it's really important. It, it's a space for all of U.S. military space to come together. It puts all the operations together. Um, so it really has an important part in our military. Space is so important in our missions going forward. And so the Space Force is really going to hit its stride and it will be a really critical part of our military. The most recent hubbub about the Space Force revolved around the location of the command HQ. Uh, a lot of people figured it would stay in Colorado Springs. The Trump administration announced right before it left office that uh, the command would uh, stand up in Huntsville, Alabama, because of the other uh, space operations that are there. Is that such a big deal in the context of overall what the Space Force needs to accomplish in the next year to five years? Yes, that's actually the Space Command, which is a little bit separate, but it is a really big issue. Um, you know, the Air Force in the past had kind of um, hinted that they would recommend Colorado to continue to be the base. Um, it's been it's been pretty controversial in the space community, and some of the other states like Colorado and New Mexico have actually um, you know filed and for an investigation into the selection process because they don't believe that they know everything that happened that went into that decision. So I think that's actually one of the first things that we'll possibly see a Biden administration tackle is to have another look at this decision and really, you know, help people understand and maybe even repeal it and pick a different place to go forward. What does it matter, though, where the, the command is located vis-a-vis -vis operations? Is, does it make a difference? Uh, not so much in the long term. You know, it's been set up in Colorado right now, which is close to a lot of other military space operations. Um, you know, people want it in their state because it boosts the economy. You know, bringing people in really helps helps everything that goes on there. Um, but, you know, right now everything's already been set up in Colorado. So a lot of people believe, you know, why not just keep it there? If it's been operating there really well for the last year plus, why move it? What are the biggest potential roadblocks the force needs to deal with in year two, in your view? 
I think the Space Force, one of the biggest problems is just its messaging. You know, critics, I think, really just don't understand what it does. And so I think that as it grows, the Space Force just needs to come out and really say, hey, look, all we're doing is consolidating what we already have in the military. We're making space easier to navigate. You know, it's all under one roof. And so I think that that messaging is going to be a really important part of silencing those critics and helping it grow. In the notes that you sent, you write about the National Space Council. What is the National Space Council and what's its role in all? It's been around for a long time and it's not something that I knew a lot about before I read your work. Yes, the National Space Council has kind of an interesting history. It's been stood up and taken down by a number of presidents in the past. Um, President Trump stood it up again in, in 2017. And so it's kind of a place where a lot of space policy people can come together, talk about these national security issues in space and put together comprehensive policy. So it's just, it's really a place where people can come together, think about this policy really intently and put out good work. And they've put out a lot of space policy directives that have come as a direction from the National Space Council. So that's another decision that's up to President Biden is will he keep it, will he take it away like other presidents have? But you know, a lot of space experts have pleaded to keep it because it does important work. We have less than a minute left. What kind of work does that council do and why would that benefit both the broader administration and the Space Force in particular, McKenna? Yeah, so the National Space Council is just a permanent place for cross-department and agency space policy discussion. So it coordinates space policy, it coordinates with the White House. It's really a place for people to come together with experts and just get an immediate decision of people who've been doing this for their entire career. McKenna Young, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every newscast by signing up for our daily program guide. You just text GovMatters to the number 58671. We'll be right back. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.